Welcome to the How I Became podcast, all about entrepreneurship. Hello, Brian. Thank you so much for joining me today on How I Became. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you and share a bit of your story. As you know, I've been following your journey and hashtag paid for a very long time. So that the listeners know, uh, this is Brian Gold. So you are a Toronto kid. You are a fiance, uh, DMZ alumni, mentor with Techstars. You graduated from Western University and the co-founder and CEO of Hashtag Paid. So my very condensed summary of who you are as a person, but I am sure I'm missing a lot in there, but wanted to open the floor to you to share anything I missed or anything that you want to elaborate on what makes you 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 thanks so much appreciate you having me on i think you captured it that that seems like a great description of me (laughs) perfect well i want to start the conversation by talking about your journey and how you first got into the world of entrepreneurship starting like whether it's at hashtag paid or before that I stumbled into the world of entrepreneurship by accident. Uh, I didn't really consider myself a founder or even really a business person. And I remember one of my friends told me to get LinkedIn. And I told him, like, LinkedIn, isn't that for business people? Why do we need LinkedIn? And he said, Brian, you are a business person. And so it sort of developed. I sort of just fell into it, specifically with hashtag paid. It started with a problem that I was just trying to solve for my friend Ronnie who gained a lot of followers online and had no way to easily monetize her audience, even though she was providing a lot of value for brands. Her audience would, she went on an inspiring fitness journey and her audience would buy anything that she said she used along the way. And so we just wanted to solve that problem for Ronnie, my co-founder and I. And when we realized nothing else existed, we just started building it. And I guess it's still fully sinking in, but yeah, that's how I got into it. And is the person that you started the business with, Ronnie, is she still part of Hashtag Paid? Or how did that journey evolve? Yeah, it's really started, I guess the first year or two was just proving out the concept. What was the best way to connect marketers and creators? And we tested a bunch of business models with Ronnie and eventually landed on the right business model and have just scaled since then. Ronnie's still in our network, but today we have about 85,000 of these creators like Ronnie that brands can tap into to hit their critical business goals. It's incredible. And when you first started, how did you, you had your problem, which I, I think is always a great place to start, but how did you even think about solving that problem when you have a sample size of one? What did that initial like problem solution iteration look like? Yeah, it's interesting because the industry that we're building is still so new. It's still in its infancy. And especially when we started this almost a decade ago, there wasn't a playbook that we could just copy or an adjacent industry that we could look at and duplicate for the problem that we were trying to solve. So it was a lot of first principles thinking. Ronnie gained almost 100,000 followers in six months. And what we realized is that her audience would buy, whether it was a blender, whether it was a protein powder, anything that she said that she used. And so the problem is that Ronnie doesn't have a way to monetize her audience and brands are missing out or don't have an easy way to connect with creators who know how to engage, motivate, and change their target audience's perception of their brand and even drive to making a purchase, they don't have a way to do that easily in that scale. So that's where you 
need to start iterating as fast as possible. The first idea that we had in order to connect brands and creators didn't work. It was a website where creators would essentially drive people to another website. And then that website had all their affiliate products. But what we realized is that in-feed moment was super important. And it took maybe six to nine months for us to iterate from the first version of hashtag pay to that second version. And so really when you start, it's all about how can you validate your idea as quick as possible? How can you put something out there, see what's working, see what's not working, and then adjust accordingly. Eric Reese in the Lean Startup, and that's essentially building a startup 101. It's how do you make sure that you can iterate as many times as possible in the runway you have so that you have enough time to land on a business model that clicks. And I mean, in that process of iterating and figuring out what works both on the brand side and on the influencer side, and you, the connector of these two pieces of the puzzle, how do you know when to pivot versus maybe the idea isn't there, or maybe the problem that you've identified isn't as big as you might've thought? Like, do you know what I mean? Between like pivoting the idea versus pivoting or tweaking the uh, solution? That's a good question. I think as long as you, well, first of all, there's different types of companies out there and then those companies are gonna have different success metrics. So for example, if you're building a consumer app and you're selling or you're giving an app away for free to consumers with the hopes of monetizing it in the future, you're probably gonna be looking at something like your stickiness index. So daily active users divided by monthly active users or perhaps even just your 30 day retention rate. How many people come back to your app 30 days later. And then essentially you need to come up with a hypothesis around what, let's say you have that app, your 30 day retention's at 5%. What's going to get people to 30%? What do you need to change in your app? And you would want to iterate as many times as possible until essentially you give up. I mean, who's to say that it's a bad idea. If you keep iterating and keep trying, eventually it might work. Um, but if you have tried I guess really it's up to the founder. If you've tried as much as you can, personally, you don't believe in the idea anymore, then I guess no one, no one's going to drive it. So at that point, you have to move to a different one. Yeah. If it's some, like a SaaS business where you're selling to businesses, then you're going to look at your retention. So similar to like how many people are retaining with you, what's your net revenue retention, your logo retention. You look at those metrics and then you're going to try to create features, products, or iterations that move those metrics to a certain milestone. And you want to do that as many times as you can in the runway you have in order to hit that milestone and, and hit those goals. And I guess at one point, if you're not able to hit it and you run out of runway, then the decision is, is almost decided for you. That's when it dies. Totally. I think in order to do that, it's a lot of passion and motivation for yourself as a founder. You went into this as a co-founder, but I know that currently you're the CEO of the company. So I'm curious how you continue to motivate yourself as you, whether it's growing at that very early stage where there's a lot of challenges and you you have to be your number one champion to today, how you continue to motivate yourself when you're leading a really huge team, you're working with really big businesses and need to ensure that all the, you know, the balls keep rolling forward. I think you touched on it perfectly, Kelly. It really comes down to your passion. There's so many ups and downs along the startup journey that you have to be passionate about what you're doing in order to make it and make it through all the tough times. 
for me personally, I think like self-governance, self-management is really important. If you're going to be leading a team and you're going to be leading people and you're going to be getting the trust from investors to operate and to succeed and to win, you need to be able to manage yourself and make sure that you are being as productive and as focused as you possibly can be. And I mean, for me, that looks like things like meditation. I'm really into now as corny as it is ice baths. I love ice baths. Um, so I've been doing that okay. and I've been really into yoga as well. And I make sure that I am doing that to make sure that I'm my best self at work and as productive as possible and making sure that we're hitting our goals. But you need to make sure that you're managing yourself as a founder and as a CEO. Do you find that yourself as a leader today is different than yourself as a leader when you were at a company size of one? Absolutely. I think if you have to constantly be leveling up and getting better as a founder, especially as a first time founder. And so if you look back at your previous self from six months ago, you shouldn't be able to recognize that person. If you're not constantly leveling up every six months, then you're doing it wrong. I like to think of my job over time from you know being a handful of people to now a hundred as I'm constantly firing myself and replacing myself with someone better, really hire people smarter than me who know more than me. And I fire myself and then I move on to something else. And I've just been sort of doing that along the way to get to where I am now. And the problems that you have to overcome as a founder change as you scale. And so now we're a series B stage company going on to our series C. The complexity of the operations of scaling an org of that size is very different than very early on where you're deep into the product market fit and you're iterating the product and you're working closely with the product team to just try to find what the right business model product solution is. Once you have all that and you have product market fit and you start scaling, it's a whole other set of problems. So you need to constantly be trying to level up every six months. I That's such a cool way of thinking of it, constantly firing yourself. Yeah, I haven't heard that, but I really like that. And do you enjoy the leadership component of it, leading a team and being maybe not... Re- more removed from the product because I think it's crucial that you stay very close to it, but you also have to stay very close to building a winning team, especially as you're raising and focused on growing the company. I think that's a huge element. So do you enjoy that, that side of it? I love leadership. It comes natural to me. I can't forget, I believe I was in grade 10 and I was doing an art project and we or it was a drama class and we split up into a group and someone else took the lead and started divvying up who was doing what. And I remember being really, I took a step back. I was like really surprised. I was like, wait a second, because that was the first time in a group project where someone else was leading and it really shocked me, but I've always felt super comfortable as a leader. I think one of the coolest things about building a business is when you get a group of people together, you can accomplish something that one person can't do on their own. And that's really the magic of company building. So. I'm obsessed with leadership and um, I like to constantly learn from great leaders, and emulate what I like. And everyone has their own leadership style. And I think that's okay. You don't need to be a certain way, but um, my leadership style is, is people first. Like people are the soul of our company. It's our number one team value. Um, very much a culture of creating a culture of accountability, um, but also giving people the space and the freedom to do what they do best. So I've definitely developed my own unique style and I was going to say something else. What was the, what was the first part of your question? 
Oh, about your leadership style and how it's, I think I was asking about how it's evolved over time and, oh, building like a, an A team and you have to make sure right. it's number one as you're growing a company. So how it's evolved. Okay. So on that point, <clears throat> excuse me, on that point, I've made a lot of mistakes and did a lot of things wrong. And I've learned a lot about how to build a winning team and a winning culture. And I've changed my approach to culture over time. When I first created a company, we were all so close. We treated everybody like family and it was really something special. As we've evolved over time, we've kept the soul of that, right? Building a culture of trust, building a culture of recognition, but we've moved from a family to a sports team. A sports team is focused on winning at all costs. And if somebody leaves, the question is, okay, who are we getting? Who did we trade for? Versus in a family, if someone leaves, people are crying. And not to say that close connections isn't important. I think that's valuable. But I used to pride myself on nobody leaving the company. Now I realize that's bad. You need people constantly leaving because it might not be the right fit for those people anymore. And you want those people to be in roles that they're thriving. You also want the company to have the right people in the roles that will take it to the next level. So I've evolved from a culture of being a family to a culture of a sports team. I think that's how you build a winning culture. Yeah, it's almost like having a good retention and churn of employees that aren't adding value. So you want to keep, obviously, the strong players and you're okay with letting go of the people who aren't aligned to the company, whether it's the product or the mission or the culture. Has So I, I agree. I think it's really important to not be a family it's a business first and, and I like the, the team aspect. How have you, how did you make that transition and keep people on board as you evolve from being family first to team first? Or I guess the part two of that question is, do you think that a startup at that very early phase where it's like three, four of you, it needs to be more family oriented because you need people to just like ride or die in it. And it's not a team at that point. What are your thoughts there? Maybe again, I don't think there's exactly a right answer. I think depending on your style, depending on your product, depending on your space, I think different cultures and different environments in the early days may work for, for different people and different businesses for us making the transition it was easier than I thought. I think I had a lot of fear what would happen once we made that transition. Right. And what I realized was the best people at the company are motivated by having other amazing people that they can learn from and work with. And if there's somebody on the team that's not pulling their weight, your best players actually might be weighed down by knowing that there's somebody who's the wrong fit or maybe not giving it they're all working as hard as them on the team. And so I think it can actually help your A players and your best people be inspired because they want to work with other great people and they want to make sure that the whole team is full of people at their caliber or higher. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And every you're right, every company is going to operate a little bit differently and have uh, a different culture and want different things. But it's important to make sure that everyone's lifting each other up and shedding the, the bottom keeping the, the 20 strongest percent and letting the rest of it kind of float away. It's just natural. When you're, I mean, you kind of mentioned this, that your work, it's a business and you're working towards key goals. 
what are some of the key metrics both on like the business side but also on the team side do you focus on as you're like moving into the series c uh, position the metrics so what we operate a b2b marketplace so we're selling the enterprise brands and so there are certain metrics that you look at in a b2b company especially a marketplace company the metrics that you look at though not only change depending on the stage that you're at but for us in the macro environment of today we've seen a huge swing over the last year or so from this growth at all costs mentality to efficient growth and so we've been really focused on efficient growth and have essentially moved full swing in towards a focus on our contribution margin and making sure that we're building a profitable company and so we definitely look at our high level growth numbers, but also that we're able to sustain the growth in an efficient way. And do you find, I mean, you started a brand trying to solve a problem for a friend and now you're going through, and I know it's been a while, but raising and investments and this whole other side of entrepreneur entrepreneurship, how has that, how has that evolution been for you? Yeah, it's interesting because you start at the surface of just this problem you're trying to solve and, and maybe a product you're trying to code. And then as you work your way up, there's new challenges and new jobs for founders and CEOs that you might not expect. For example, managing a board of directors. It's not something that you think of when you think of starting a company, but being able to work well with your board of directors is super critical. And if done right, can actually help propel your company to success faster than you could by yourself. Or yeah, raising rounds of, of financing. It's a different and unique skill that you have to develop. It's different than the core of the business because you kind of have to step away from the business to talk at a high level about the story, but it's super critical in the business's growth. So it's very important. Um, yeah, it's been an interesting journey learning those. And I feel like each year there's new challenges and, and new growth problems to solve. So as long as you're as we like to call it at hashtag paid a learning animal, constantly learning and growing, then you can succeed and, and keep leveling up and taking on those new challenges that you didn't initially anticipate. How are you making sure that you keep learning? I mean, when I hear you say that you, you're learning how to manage a board of directors and there's this whole new side of finance that you have to understand, it like gives me heart palpitations, right? Like it, it's scary. So how have you uh, like learn like an animal and continue to adopt all these new um, things that you, you need to learn in order to keep up? Do you have mentors? Are you reading on blogs? Like, just how do you do that while running the business? Yeah, I find it super fun. I think if you have an open mind and you're excited about problem solving, excited about learning and leveling up and you approach it that way, then I don't think there's anything you can't do. So uh, for me personally, it's a mix of mentors. I would not be where I am today if it wasn't for my mentors. There's a lot yeah. of great people that surround the company that are on our board of advisors or that are just coaches that I can call on or talk through about specific problems, as well as networks of whether it's investment groups or people that can help you. And there's tons of resources online or books. Most recently, there's a book called Scaling People by Claire Hughes Johnson, who was at Google for many years and then went to be the COO of Stripe. And she's got a really tactical book. So it's got playbooks, for example, how to manage people really well. And so you can reference books like that to 
help learn from others. There's another one called the High Growth Handbook by Scott Delsky. That one's also super tactical. It's got a lot of great advice for entrepreneurs. Amazing. I made note of that so we can I can link it in afterwards. And you mentioned before that, I mean, we've talked so much about your leadership and the growth of the company. And you mentioned you're in Series B moving towards Series C. How has that journey been? When you first started the company, I imagine that wasn't the expectation of where you would end up. So when did you start thinking about raising and how did you initially approach it? Well, from the get-go, we knew that we wanted to raise money because the opportunity, the categorical opportunity was so big that we needed to move fast and operate at a loss in order to capture it. And so we knew from the get-go that the type of business, I guess that's also an important thing to distinguish for founders out there. What kind of business are you building? Are you building a lifestyle business that potentially makes you a couple hundred thousand dollars a year? That's amazing. Are you building a venture-backed startup that needs to potentially go into a burn in order to capture market share and then eventually make money? I don't think one's better than the other. And I think over the last couple of months, people have started to realize that the allure of raising venture capital and scaling your team, you know, perhaps isn't all that all that it's cut out to be. It's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of sweat and tears. You're not, it's not necessarily better than having a lifestyle business where you don't raise venture capital. So I, you know, founders should be really mindful about what kind of the business they're raising. And then if you are raising your first angel round, then happy to share more about how to do that. I work with a lot of founders, helping them raise their first rounds. And the way I describe it is essentially a twofold process. First is you got to nail your story, your deck. And you know, some people today even just write an investment memo, but the way that I've always done it is you put together a presentation, a PowerPoint or a Google slides or a keynote. You just have essentially a really, really tight story around what your business is. And at the earlier stages, it really is more of an art than a science. It's really about being future oriented and, and painting a big vision, a big picture. I tell founders that the worst amount of revenue you can have in order to raise is $1 because as soon as you start bringing in money, it's never enough. So at the very early stages, just based off of the story alone, you should be able to get your, your first round done. Of course, some traction is always great, but at that stage, it's, it's an art. And once you have a really strong deck in place, that's when you start scoping out, okay, who are the best investors for you? So you look at strategic people that are in your space that are more experienced. You look at angel networks in your local city. Who are the people that are the right investors for you? And then you run your process. So imagine two weeks where you have back-to-back -back meetings filled with those potential investors. In order to get those meetings on the calendar, I highly recommend a warm introduction. It's the best way to meet an investor. The number one way you can get connected to an investor is through a portfolio company, a successful portfolio company of theirs. So if they've invested in a really bright entrepreneur, getting an intro through that entrepreneur is the highest signal intro that, that you can get. Once you, and so it's, you can look on LinkedIn, you can see who's connected to those investors, ask that person for an intro, jump on a call with them, ask them for an intro, ask them maybe who else they might know that's a good fit. But you really want to lean on the warm introductions through your network if you can to get introductions to the investors and then line them all up and create as much of a competitive process as possible. If you go to one investor and you give them an opportunity and they know that they're the only investor that they're going to, they have no urgency to close the round, they can drag their feet, wait as long as possible so that they can see your traction 
and perhaps invest in you once the risk is a little bit lower because you're farther along, there really isn't anything driving them. And so what you want to do is create a really tight process where you're meeting with as much investors as soon as possible. You're in control. You're collecting maybe some soft circles, as we call it. So ask them if you want to, uh, you know, perhaps you're raising a $500,000 angel round or a million dollar angel round. You can say, hey, what's your typical check size? Maybe they say 100K. Do you want us to make sure that there's room for you? Sure. Okay. You know, you have that then allocated to them until you meet with so many people that the round is already full. And now it's just about closing and you can follow up with all those investors. Hey, you mentioned that you wanted us to save you room for 100K. The round's coming together. We're oversubscribed. We're closing by this date. Um, I'll send you the paperwork. Can you sign by Wednesday with money in the bank by Friday? Otherwise, you know, things are just moving fast. I love the tactical explanation because it it's a black box, I think, to a lot of entrepreneurs of what does that process look like? It's also very emotional and, and maybe you want to touch on that as well. But I, it's very difficult because you're also running a business and trying to grow a business. And that in itself, the networking of it, the getting all, you know, getting all your ducks in a row is a full-time job as well. But maybe like the emotional side of it because it's exhausting and, I, and you also want to have a bit of a life outside of this. So how, how did you keep it going? Was that the ice baths, meditation and yoga? I found those later on. But yeah, bringing me back to the seed <laughs> round. I remember um, you're right. It's very, very hard because you need to run the business and fundraise at the same time. And I remember spending the bulk of my day fundraising and then after dinner, hanging out at the office, doing the product management work and QAing the features that we were building. You really have to do, you have to run two businesses at once. You're doing two jobs at once. So that part is really hard. And I guess the other really hard part is the rejection. You're going to get a lot of people rejecting you and a lot of people saying no. And that can be tiring and that can wear on you. But if you believe in yourself and you believe in what you're doing and you believe in the problem that you're solving, you can persevere. The best advice I got around that is that throughout the startup journey, there's highs and lows and you need to celebrate the highs to really balance out how low the lows are and never let any low get you too low or any high get you too high and keep an even keel, but make sure you celebrate the wins along the way. I think it's great advice and hopefully someone listens to that and goes, you know, listens to this and, and goes and celebrates a little bit tonight, you know, whatever a, a new increased sessions to the landing page or whatever the small win is of today, because you can get so overwhelmed with the challenges and it's a startup environment. There's going to be a million of those, but it just means more opportunity. I think if, if you can push forward, but I, I also want to dig a little bit into hashtag paid and where it is today. So I know one thing that I find interesting and I constantly well, now actually it's part of my own language, but not calling it influencers, but a creator strategy and evolving that. And I think you guys have really led the charge, at least from what I've seen in transitioning, just like influencers to cre creators and much more thoughtfulness behind the strategies that companies build. I mean, I just, I think it's incredible when you think of the fact that you guys started with one friend who had a really big following to now working with household name brands and like fortune 100s. It's just wild. So 
there's so much more that you guys have evolved into. So can you talk a bit about the evolution from like influencers to creators and how you've grown from the one person to working with huge name brands? Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest problem from my perspective in the influencer marketing space is trust. People don't trust influencers and people don't trust results. And whenever I'm at conferences and I'm talking to brand marketers, directors of marketing, I'm hearing the same thing. People have really always said this. And so about five years ago, we set out to solve the problem of trust. And part of that is working with creators, not influencers, which I'll expand on. And then the other part is making sure that marketers are confident in the metrics. If you don't trust influencers, you don't trust the results of your programs, you don't trust the channel. And so we've spent a lot of time trying to solve that. And the distinction between creators and influencers is that a creator blew up online because they were just following something that they were passionate about. Think back to my friend, Ronnie, the inspiration of the business. She was just inspired to get fit. She just wanted to do something and hold herself accountable to the public. It didn't start because she thought it was a way to make money. She started it because it was something she was just passionate about. And we see that in common with creators. Whereas an influencer might just be looking to make a quick buck, looking to make money. A creator is only going to work with brands that are a natural, authentic extension of who they are. Whereas an influencer will work with any brand because they're just trying to make money and they're probably going to delete the post off their feed as soon as they're paid because they're embarrassed. They feel like they're selling out. You know, an influencer is quick to just be like, tell me what to post and I'll post it. Whereas a creator would never do that because they have a lot of trust with their audience. They don't want to jeopardize that trust. They want to create content that adds value to their audience. And so they're going to create the content themselves and they're going to make sure it adds value and resonates with their audience. And, you know, an influencer is quick to buy fake followers. It's very common now. People, it's a big problem. People are buying fake followers, buying fake likes and trying to make money from brands and, and rip them off. Whereas a creator would, would never do that. They never want to jeopardize that trust. And so we created that distinction market in 2018. It's been great seeing the industry pick that up, moving, you know, from creators or from influencers to creators and from, fluffy metrics to real metrics. We really wanted to move from influencer marketing to we call creator marketing. And now a lot of our partners in the industry are using that same language as us. TikTok, for example, who is a partner of ours, they call it creator marketing now. And so it's great to see the industry sort of move in that direction. For us, we always had a really high caliber of the creators that we worked with. And so this was an excellent way to articulate that. Another thing here is, you know, when you work with creators, not influencers, they typically create higher quality content. But again, what's really important is the match between the brand and creator and authenticity is key. We, our whole business model is a marketplace. There are other people who approach this problem and they build a SaaS company where they give marketers a list of millions of people and they can go and they can search and they can find those people. But there's a lot of things that we solve through our marketplace model. And if authenticity is the most important thing between a brand and creator match, with our creator network, we have a tool called HandRaise where you get a match with creators who are the perfect fit for you, whether it's a specific brief, a specific person you're looking for, or maybe you're looking for a few types of people, you can hear from them firsthand who they are and why they're a fit. And that's only possible by having an on-platform creator network and workflow tools to activate them. So that's how we've solved that problem. I think the hand raise tool is it's really amazing because on as when I've worked on the inf, like with influencers but also with content creators when you're sifting through a list of influencers you're trying to assess 
as a brand if this person is going to fit and then you're it's kind of the otis is on you to make that decision whereas on hand raise it goes to the creator to say hey this is why I'm interested in working with your brand. This is why, like, they're pitching themselves to you. And I think that creates a really special relationship. It also allows the brand to have a bit more trust with the person who's going to be putting their product out into the world. So it's such an interesting solution. It's also interesting how you guys have evolved from the initial problem that you started with and developed features and products within hashtag paid to continue to evolve as the entire influencer and creator space has evolved because to your point it wasn't really in existence when you guys started like you kind of kicked it off totally it's completely evolving and just building off that point about 50 percent of the creators that we present an opportunity to decline the opportunity they come back and say they're not interested at all and we love that because that is authentic. That is the difference between creators, not influencers. These aren't a group of people that are just willing to take any brand deal to make money. They're selecting the authentic partnerships and brands see that and then brands have more success. So I think that's really important. And then, yeah, the industry continues to evolve. We continue to be at the forefront, pushing what's possible, creating the marketplace that we think should exist in the world. And part of that is a new feature that we launched called Rights, where you can take creator content and place it anywhere. Creators are so talented. They're able to tell a brand story in an incredible way. It doesn't need to be limited to social media. And so what we did was we created a feature that allowed brands to license the rights to that content to place it on any other channel. Think out of home, billboards, magazines, television. And we've seen a lot of success with that. We have, for example, Infinity creating really high quality content with some of our top creators, including Alan Pounder, and taking that content and putting it in movie theaters and putting it in airplanes on flights leaving internationally. And so it's really cool to see the evolution of creator content and where creators can go. And it's great to be driving that with an industry first feature like rights. And I think what's really cool about rights too, is if you ask a creator, Hey, I want to take this content. I need 10 million impressions on print in North America for three months. They have no idea how to price that. Nobody knows how to price that. And so what we did was yeah. we created a pricing algorithm to completely automate that. And then we took it one step further and we built upon our decade of data. And we said, hey, creators, now when you sign up, you just need to connect your Instagram or your TikTok and we'll automatically recommend a rate. You can price yourselves higher. You can price yourself lower and you keep 100% of the price you set. Um, but we now we recommend that price to creators. Wow. That's incredible. And that's through collecting like the data and the information over time. That's how you're able to make those sort of recommendations. Exactly. We have 10 years of seeing how much creators are charging and how much brands are paying for photos, videos, stories across all the different social platforms. And so building upon that data, we can now automate it. Automate it. And it's typically the wild west. And so now we can make sure that there's fair rates. We're really big on fair rates, right? We want brands to be able to get as much value as possible, but we also don't want to rip creators off. And so finding that perfect balance to make sure that creators are well compensated for the high quality work they're doing, especially when alternative channels are much more expensive, at the same time, making sure that brands are able to get a really good bang for their bucks so if they see the return on investment and that they can feel confident to continue to invest in the channel. It's, a, it's so awesome. Back, I mean, years ago when, when I had with my partner 
Awoken Aware, which I think you and I maybe talked about years ago when we were when we were running our e-commerce business and we were looking at doing some influencer work and we were just we were pretty small, right? So we were just DMing creators online and the range at which the rates came back with okay, three photos that are live for 3 weeks cost x amount versus one photo that lives forever is like, you know, 100 times a different price and you're like there is just there's no consistency and it's really hard as well as a brand to start to make those selections because you it's based off nothing but it's I imagine also very hard on the creators to price themselves because there's nothing to look to to know this is kind of where I should live so I mean kudos because you're adding value again for both sides of the equation of the marketplace exactly when when you look back over what is it 10 years now about about not, yeah about 10 years now wow it, that's incredible what are you what are some of the key things that you're most proud of as you look at your entrepreneurial journey and what you've grown interesting question i don't feel proud a lot and that's not to say that the team doesn't do amazing works the team does but my mind's constantly thinking about what's next and it's constantly thinking about all the ways we can be better and i'm constantly dissatisfied with the status quo and so a lot of my day-to-day and a lot of my mindset is around pushing and driving us to be better so i it's very rare that i i take a moment and reflect but i'm trying to do that more yes yeah, some of the things i'm most proud of when i hear stories from creators who were able to become full-time creators because of hashtag paid that really drives me and builds a lot of confidence in what we're doing and helps me keep going because that's such a profound impact you have on someone who's naturally creative, but was never able to monetize their creativity before. And now they can full time. I always love hearing those stories. So yeah, definitely reluctant to say proud, but yeah, I'm proud of, of, uh, of <laughs> the impact that we've had on creators. Do you, I'll be specific on this one because I'm excited for you, but do you find excitement in the, the big names on the, in, on the creator side that you've brought onto the platform and same on the brands because you have major brands? Does that excite you that you've grown to a place that these major people and brands feel comfortable and trust hashtag paid to invest their marketing um, channels, like channel investment with you? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I'm not immune to, uh, to the world of celebrities and talent. And so when we work with a a big name or when we bring a deal to an NBA athlete that, you know, I look up to and admire, I definitely get excited that we're doing that. But again, you know, am I proud of what we've done? I guess so. But like, I want to do 50 times more, you know, what do we have? Maybe a hundred craters that have gone full time because of our platform. I want a thousand craters I want a hundred thousand craters. I know we can have a bigger impact. I know that the market exists and our solution is the right solution. I just, we need to execute and, and build it. So constantly thinking about what's next and how we can be better. What are some of the future opportunities that you're thinking of that you can share right now? What can I share? There's a lot we're working on. A lot of it is. Maybe it, this is a good hook and people, People will have to check back at hashtag paid and see where you guys are in the next six months and a year. I guess we're still like really early 
We're really early on the rights piece. We just launched it, but it was more of a soft launch. We're actually doing a full launch in New York next Thursday at our flagship event, Meet the Creators. So that's really still what's next. Yes, we've seen Infinity take that content to movie theaters and airplanes. We've seen Sephora take that content and put it in their retail stores. That's great, but we're really just getting started. Brands also are looking to be more efficient with their spend. And what they're starting to realize now is if they take creator content and then purchase rights, they can save a lot of money on their creative costs. They don't need to necessarily spend as much money with their creative agency, building up that creative, but then they get all the content that they need in order to essentially plug into all of their media channels. So we're still scratching the surface of what's possible with rights. I'd love to see every brand we work with have creators at the center of their marketing mix and think about how that content can live on all of their distribution channels. Yeah, it's really cool and allows for, we always talk about, you know, content being king or queen and being able to take one piece and slice and dice it a million different ways. And I think this is just one more tool to be able to repurpose your content and have consistency, right? Because then you're seeing the same piece, but maybe a little bit different or, you know, tweaked a bit, but across so many different channels and platforms, it helps deepen the the connection when you're building out that strategy totally and consumers find creator content more authentic more relatable and more credible than branded content and so when you're able to tap in to the personality and likeness of a creator to get your message across you can actually create more change in your target audience than if you were creating the content yourself and trying to advertise it on your on your own channels with your brand amazing So I have just two last questions for you. So one of them is, it's, I asked this because I think I faced a lot of myths when I was growing my business and you hear a lot of things as an entrepreneur that you realize is just a myth and it's not real once you actually start digging into the business. So I'm curious if there's any myths that you were told as a founder that as you've grown your business or grown as a leader, you realize is is not true and that you want to dispel that myth very early on i was fixated that there were two metrics that was your ultimate startup success and whenever i would meet other founders you know i would ask them these these two questions and gauge and judge how successful they were based on it and i think it's a myth those questions are how much money have you raised and how big is your team more money you raised and the bigger your team the better Nowadays, I think it's the opposite. If you're able to get far without raising a lot of money and with a small team, you are way more successful than a founder who's in the same place as you, who's raised more money and has a bigger team and a bigger cost base. So I think it's a myth that the amount of money you raised and the size of your team is a metric of success. I don't think those matter. What matters is the value that you're creating and putting out in the world. Would you replace those two questions with something else? There's definitely the impact that your startup has for us, like the dollars that you're paying out to creators. I mean, I think that would be a pretty big metric. You can also look at just top line revenues, profits, and the value of your shares as well. But I think it's just about whatever your product does, it, you know, it, how much value are you actually creating? You know, even for us, for marketers, it's like, how much time are you saving marketers? What's the ROI that you're giving to the brands that you're working with? I mean, those are better metrics to quantify how successful we are versus how much money we've raised or how many people we have. Totally. 
Um, and then my very last question, as you know, the name of the podcast is How I Became. And we've talked a lot about your journey and the business. If you were to name the episode, you at this current present time, How I Became fill in the blank, what would you name your episode? Do I get to name the episode? Mm-hmm. <laughs> love it. I take I the think... pressure off of me and I put it onto you. <laughs> I love it. This is fun. I think it would be how I became the creator marketing founder. That's everything for today. The creator marketing founder. I love it. Great episode name. Is there anything that you want to share or that you were thinking that you would talk about on the podcast that we didn't touch on today? I guess the last point I would leave with aspiring founders is that, um, Belief in yourself is key. You really need to believe in yourself before you convince other people to join your team or investors to bet on you. And if you do believe in yourself, then you're unstoppable and just keep going. But I think that's a really important thing to call out. Yeah, it's so, I think it's so important and it goes back to every, every component that we talked on today, right? Like feeling comfortable firing yourself that you can continue to grow or, making sure you're constantly leveling up, keeping that motivation going, it all comes back to that point. So I, I appreciate that you brought that up at the end and it's uh, a great point to end on. So Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Love it. Thanks so much for having me, Kelly. How I Became, a Bluemex podcast, is hosted by Kelly Yafet and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more How I Became content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bloomx.io to join us on Discord.